Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. We're not going to insult the intelligence of anyone over the age of 30 in our audience by suggesting that they somehow missed the international phenomenon that was the mid-2000s obsession with the novel The Da Vinci Code and the insinuations about a true but deliberately hidden history of Christianity and especially the Catholic Church that author Dan Brown's book made. Of course, given our interests, our ears definitely perked 15 years ago when we started hearing wild accusations about a secret Jesus family and a conspiracy that wended throughout all of Western history. But we quickly realized the book was a poorly put together pastiche of nonsense that we had already heard because it was ripped from other more interesting conspiracists, and we moved on to other topics. But of course, as we started delving into our Templar Mason and other researches for this series, Brown's book kept popping up as an important part of the way that the fake stories of these groups were being remixed and reimagined in contemporary popular culture. It became obvious that we were going to have to talk about it. So we watched the movie. No, he didn't read the book. Why? Well, first of all, he didn't read the fucking Warren Commission report for JFK. You think he's going to feel mandated to read this horseshit? Yeah. Also, it appears that this is one of those slavish, super literal translations that Hollywood can be depended upon to produce if a book gets a big and irascible enough fan base. Nobody at the studio wants to be on the receiving end of a bunch of people with poor literary taste who are upset that you changed their favorite shitty scene and their favorite shitty author's shitty book for your shitty movie. Not that he went into this with any preconceptions. No, I knew it was going to be a real poop sandwich of a cinematic experience, but I love working on the show, and California has legal weed, so I figured it would be kind of a hoot. Listener, I can tell you, I was very, very wrong. How is this movie so goddamn bad and boring? The assembled cast is astonishingly talented, and director Ron Howard has been known to put out a well-paced crowd-pleaser. So how did this leaden, clunky exposition fest get made? Did Tom Hanks, Audrey Tattoo, Ian McKellen, Alfred Molina, and Jean Reno all have vacation home payments that came due at the same time? How else did they end up in this garbage? And apparently reviewers weren't any kinder to the prose stylings of the novel, which we have indeed read in excerpts. And not that it has much bearing here, but we couldn't resist quoting a few of the juiciest jabs. The New York Times, while reviewing the movie, called the book Dan Brown's best-selling primer on how not to write an English sentence. Yeah, and in another drubbing we enjoyed, Jeffrey Pullum at Penn State's Language Log referred to Brown's writing as, quote, Not just bad, it is staggeringly, clumsily, thoughtlessly, almost ingeniously bad. In some passages, scarcely a word or phrase seems to have been carefully selected or compared with alternatives. I slogged through 454 pages of this syntactic swill, and it never gets much better. Ouch. 
but I'm not here to bash Brown's catastrophic literary instincts. I'm here to take him to task for one line on the acknowledgments page. Quote, All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Oh, shit, son, you done fucked up now. You just made New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman mad. Yes, the official paranoid strain favoritist ever scholar of ancient history. Technically, it's a tie with Professor Kenneth Harl of Tulane University, whose great courses you would all be wise to experience. Fact. Anyway, Dr. Ehrman took umbrage with this rather broad claim of Brown's, especially when it comes to ancient documents, that Brown would have no idea how to even read in their original languages, unlike Bart Ehrman. And so we're once again going to turn to Dr. Ehrman, among others, to start walking us through the dizzying, refracted pseudo-history at the heart of the Da Vinci Code phenomenon. But it's not just Ehrman's corrections about the stuff Brown gets wrong regarding the historical Jesus, the Gospels, and the construction of the Bible. It turns out there's a lot of layers of horseshit for us to uncover within this, among the most popular and widely believed conspiracy theories to emerge in this century. And so we plan to shovel away all of the dumb fuckery until we eventually get down to the soft, chewy nougat of historical truth at its center. Sorry, did you just evoke a horseshit nougat candy? Let's not worry over much about my repulsive metaphors, Dana. Instead, let's take on the claims made in the cacophonous banality that is the aforementioned Da Vinci Code movie. First, a plot summary. The film's main character is a globetrotting Harvard professor of symbology. A discipline that Brown made up named Robert Langdon. While he's in Paris on a book tour, a curator and professional acquaintance of Langdon's is murdered at the Louvre. Our hero deciphers some sort of message left by the dead guy. Drawn in his own blood. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it turns out the cops think Langdon is the murderer and they put a tracking bug on him until the dead guy's granddaughter, Sophie, who works as a cryptographer with a gendarme, tells him about it and throws it away. The two of them then follow a series of clues that lead them to various priceless artifacts, encoded messages left in da Vinci's paintings, etc., until they realize that the dead grandpa curator was also the head of a secret society called the Priory of Sion. Much, much more about those folks a little later. Eventually, they realize they are being pursued by sinister forces led by a shadowy Catholic order called Opus Dei, whose albino monk assassin is trying to kill anyone associated with the Priory and its secret. Believing that said secret has to do with the Holy Grail, Langdon and Sophie show up at the Paris estate of a friend and Grail scholar named Lee Teabing. There's more plot after they reach Teabing, but it's even dumber. So we're just going to focus on this scene because it's where most of the most controversial historical claims are discussed. Yeah, it's in Teabing's mansion that we get the big information dump that lies at the heart of why people who don't read much or think too hard believe that this hack of a novelist has unleashed real-life secrets that would shake the foundations of the Catholic Church. Which has been doing an admirable job of shaking its own foundations over the past few decades. Thanks very much. And just to make this exploration as entertaining as possible, we're going back to a trick we pulled in our JFK episode. We'll review the claims made in this scene and a few other key moments where Brown's characters declaim about history and use the lightning round sound to give ourselves three minutes each to explain why these claims are nonsense. Gather your popcorn and 3D glasses and let the corrections begin. To understand the Holy Grail, my dear, you must first understand the Holy Bible. The Bible, as we know it, was finally presided over by one man, the pagan emperor Constantine. I thought Constantine was a Christian. Oh, hardly, no. He was a lifelong pagan who was baptized on his deathbed. Constantine was Rome's supreme holy man. From time immemorial, 
his people had worshipped a balance between nature's male deities and the goddess or sacred feminine. But a growing religious turmoil was gripping Rome. Three centuries earlier, a young Jew named Jesus had come along, preaching love and a single God. Centuries after his crucifixion, Christ's followers had grown exponentially and had started a religious war against the pagans. Or did the pagans commence war against the Christians? So let's deal with these, our first major set of misstatements. First, thanks to Dr. Ehrman, we definitely can say who started the turmoil between the Christians and the pagans in the time before Constantine. It was, in fact, the pagans, who saw the Christians' refusal to worship other gods besides their own as a dangerous practice that could bring down the wrath of the other gods upon society, as we mentioned earlier. But there weren't enough Christians in society to actually foment a full-on civil war. What was happening was a religious majority oppressing a religious minority, a story as old as time. But focusing on Constantine, the first Roman emperor who converted to Christianity, the real story is that he was a pagan battling a rival for the throne when he had a dream in which he saw the sign of the cross flying over his army and a voice that told him, In this sign, you will conquer. He rebranded his army with Christian markings and went on to victory. Constantine, counter to the way the movie characterizes him, was to all appearances a genuine, if somewhat unorthodox, Christian from that point, though he may have muddled his belief in Christ with his former devotion to the cult of Saul Invictus. Translation, the unconquered son. A sort of proto-monotheist cult within Roman society that worshipped the sun as a deity above all others. And to be fair, membership in this cult may have paved the way for Constantine's later further turn to monotheism. Sure, but as the rather excitable and overly defensive pro-Catholic tome The Da Vinci Hoax points out, Brown's argument is that Constantine destroyed the previous pagan balance between male and female divinity with his patriarchal version of Christianity. But if it's the case that he was, quote, waging a campaign of propaganda that demonized the sacred feminine, obliterating the goddess from modern religion forever, but then at the same time was leading the overwhelmingly popular cult of the masculine, single assault Invictus, then where was the divine feminine that was being displaced? Good question. And it's true that he became baptized only on his deathbed, but that was actually pretty common at the time. Many believers wanted their baptism to wash them clean as sins as close to their deaths as possible, so they had less to atone for when they met the big guy. So the whole tone of the movie's accusation here, that Constantine was simply a clever politician who faked conversion to quell a civil war, is way off the mark. And in 325 Anno Domini, he decided to unify Rome under a single religion, Christianity. Christianity was on the rise. He didn't want his empire torn apart. This makes it sound as though in 325, Constantine made it illegal to be a non-Christian in Rome. He did nothing of the sort, but rather passed a series of edicts that stopped the persecution of Christians. None of them forbade the practice of traditional Roman worship of the many gods. And to strengthen this new Christian tradition, Constantine held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the many sects of Christianity debated and uh, voted on, well, uh, everything from the acceptance and rejection of specific Gospels to the date for Easter to the ministering of the sacraments and, of course, the immortality of Jesus. I don't follow. 
Masha until that moment in history. Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, as a great and powerful man, but a man, nevertheless, a mortal man. Some Christians held that Jesus was mortal. Some Christians believed he was divine. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew twice removed. Hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity came from a vault? Well, remember in those days, gods were everywhere. By infusing Jesus the man with the divine magic, by making him capable of uh, earthly miracles, as well as his own resurrection, Constantine turned him into a god, but within the human world. And he basically knocked the more distant gods out of the game. Constantine did not create Jesus' divinity. He simply sanctioned an already widely held idea. Semantics. No, it's not semantics. You're, you're interpreting facts to support your own conclusions. Facts for many Christians. Jesus was mortal one day and divine the next. For some... So that shit's bananas. Instead, as Dr. Ehrman will explain, the Council of Nicaea was held in order to answer a question about Christ's divinity, not to establish the divinity itself. This may seem to us today to be a rather arcane set of debates. But in Alexandria and in other parts of the Christian world of the early 4th century, they were hotly contested. And the heat of the debates affected the unity of the church, as arguments, fights, and even acts of violence eventually broke out over the issue of whether Jesus was only like God, in that he was created as a secondary divinity, or was of the same substance as God, co-eternal with him. What has all this to do with Constantine? Constantine wanted Christianity to help unify his empire. But how could Christianity bring unity when it was split against itself on what was considered at the time a fundamental theological issue, in some ways, the theological issue, the nature of God himself? Constantine, wanting unity in the church because he wanted unity in his empire, called a council to decide the issue raised most poignantly by Arius, whether Christ was a divine creation of the Father or was himself co-eternal and equal with God. The Council of Nicaea met in 325 CE to decide the issue. Contrary to what Li Tibing asserts, it was not a particularly close vote. The vast majority of the 200 or 250 bishops present sided with the view of Athanasius against Arius, which was eventually to become the view of Christianity at large, although the debates continued for decades even after the council. And more important, contrary to Tibing, it was not a vote on Jesus' divinity. Christians for 250 years had agreed that Jesus was divine. The only question was how he was divine, and that was what the Council of Nicaea was called to resolve. The Da Vinci hoax notes that while much of the material that Brown's characters parrot here comes from other sources, this particular suggestion, that the Council of Nicaea was the first place where believers decided that Christ was divine, seems to be original to Brown. The bullshit's getting piled up. Next, we hear the real fake truth about the real fake Holy Grail. And the chalice resembles a cup or vessel, or more importantly, the shape of a woman's womb. No, the Grail has never been a cup. It is quite literally this ancient symbol of womanhood. And in this case, a woman who carried a secret so powerful that if revealed, it would devastate the very foundations of Christianity. Wait, please. You're saying the Holy Grail is a person? A woman? 
We're not so upset about this one. Sure, the Holy Grail can be a person instead of a cup. Doesn't matter, because the whole thing is an invention from the 12th century and has never been plausibly shown to have existed in the real world. So your imaginary thing can be a different imaginary thing. Knock yourself out. Now, listen to this. It's from the Gospel according to Philip. Philip? Yes, it was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, along with any other Gospels that made Jesus appear human and not divine. Unsurprisingly, it was not the Council of Nicaea nor Constantine who decided which Gospels would become canonical. Is it true that Constantine was responsible for making the final decision about the four Gospels that came to be included in the New Testament, as Lee Teabing claims? Were there a variety of Gospels, still widely accepted in the early 4th century, from which Constantine chose four to be included in the final canon of Scripture? Even this is not a historically accurate view. Not only were certain heretical texts, such as the Gospel of Peter, excluded by the majority of Christians in the second century, but the fourfold Gospel canon of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was itself established long before Constantine as well. Moreover, there's that snide suggestion that the Gospels that made it into the Bible were the only ones out of dozens that made Jesus seem more like a divine being than a man. There are a few problems with this, including the fact, as Ehrman points out, speaking of the treasure trove of Gnostic writing discovered in Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1947, nor do they speak of Jesus' ministry in very human terms. If anything, Jesus is portrayed as more divine in the Nag Hammadi sources than he is in the Gospels of the New Testament. Finally, Ehrman has a real brain teaser for anyone who finds the Teabing character's rant about the Gospels sensible. Teabing, in fact, presents a rather confused picture to Sophie in his discussion of Jesus' identity as divine. On one hand, he indicates that Jesus' divinity was not accepted until Nicaea in the year 325. On the other hand, he indicates that Constantine accepted into his canon of scripture only those gospels that portray Jesus as divine, eliminating all the other gospels that portray Jesus as human. But if Jesus' divinity was not acknowledged by Christians until the Council of Nicaea, Teabing's view, how could the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John portray him as divine already in the first century, which is also his view? See the problem? Teabing suggests that originally Christians and their Gospels talked about a great man named Jesus who wasn't divine. And then Constantine came along and instead forced in four Gospels that talked about Jesus as divine. But then the four he chose, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are among the very oldest documents that come to us after Christ's death. How does that make sense if no one originally thought of him as divine? Is all of this so convoluted? I am getting a headache. And the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her. But this on says the... nothing of marriage. Well, actually, um, Robert. Actually, in those days, the word companion literally meant spouse. And this is from the Gospel of Mary Magdalene herself. She wrote a gospel? She may have. Robert, will you fight for her? She may have. And Peter said, did he prefer her to us? And Levi answered, Peter, I see you contending against a woman like an adversary. If the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? And then my dear Jesus goes on to tell Mary Magdalene that it's up to her to continue his church. Mary Magdalene, not Peter. The church was supposed to be carried on by a woman. 
Lee Teabing claims that the Aramaic word for companion really means spouse and uses this to show that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. But as we have seen, the text is written not in Aramaic, but in Coptic. And the word for companion, it's a Greek loanword, koinonos, in fact means not spouse, but companion, friend, or associate. When the legend speaks of the chalice that held the blood of Christ, it speaks in fact of the female womb that carried Jesus's royal bloodline. But how could Christ have a bloodline unless... Mary was pregnant at the time of the crucifixion. For her own safety and for that of Christ's unborn child, she fled the Holy Land and came to France. And here it is said she gave birth to a daughter, Sarah. The child's name. You asked what would be worth killing for. Witness the greatest cover-up in human history. This is the secret the Priory of Sion has defended for over 20 centuries. They are the guardians of the royal bloodline. The keepers of the proof of our true past. They are the protectors of the living descendants of Jesus Christ. Now here's where it really gets off the rails. At this point, the book is claiming that Mary Magdalene was not only Jesus's lawfully wedded wife, but was pregnant with his baby girl at the time he was crucified. She then fled to Europe and there established an honest-to-God Jesus bloodline. I'm assuming I don't have to tell you that there's not a shred of evidence for this view, but we'll have more to say on those who came up with the modern version of this wacky, world-spanning Jesus family adventure a bit later. After this scene, there's a whole lot more running around chased by authorities, but eventually we find out Sophie herself is actually the latest generation of this bloodline, and Langdon has to protect her, yada yada, Mary Magdalene is buried under the pyramid at the Louvre. Spoiler alert! No one gives a shit, Dana. Or, God, we hope they don't. Well, let's modify that. The super-Catholics who wrote the Da Vinci hoax seem pretty steamed about all this, saying, What Dan Brown and his sources, influences, and fellow travelers display is a radical refusal to engage the Catholic Church and her cultural artifacts on her own terms. The occultists, feminists, and Gnostics who inspired Brown wish only to redefine and mutilate Catholicism unto its destruction. To which we say, bro, bro. Why you mad, bro? bro? I ain't mean to make you sad. You're my bad, bro. Anyway, the Da Vinci Code is nonsense of the purest race serene. But an upsetting number of people greeted the publication of this piece of shit as if Dan Brown had unleashed a treasure trove of unknown information. But as we've seen, Brown didn't do much, if any, original, careful, in-depth research at all. In fact, it turns out the most interesting thing about this book, aside from the sheer wall of credulous books, documentaries, and other crap that believers in its insane ramblings and opportunists seeking a quick buck have produced, is the fact that this mess of poorly researched fiction was actually based on a carefully researched nonfiction book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The authors of that book were so incensed by the way Dan Brown had taken from their research and in many cases twisted or misrepresented it that they actually sued him for copyright infringement. Conrad Bauer, in his awkwardly written but admirably brief and informative history of the Priory of Sion, again, coming up soon, gives us a quick overview of this case held in 2009 in a court in London. Richard Lay, hailing from New Jersey, and Michael Bajant, hailing from New Zealand. They glower at Dan Brown, who strangely enough hails from New Hampshire, 
from the other side of court, 61. Dan Brown is the defendant, and the other two men have accused him of plagiarism. Brown, they say, not only stole their ideas, but presented them to the world in a way which discredited the work they had done. Béjean and Lay are better known to the world as the authors of The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail. As well as being one of the most popular pieces of writing ever created on the subject of the Holy Grail, their book brings the idea of the Priory of Sion to an English-speaking audience. As we will discover soon, their work was wildly successful, and few writers have come as close to delivering as groundbreaking, as controversial, and as profitable a take on religion in the last three centuries. And so, both sides of the courtroom are inhabited by writers. On this day, a verdict is to be reached, which will lend credence to, or demolish the credibility of, an idea which is said to date back almost 2,000 years. At the heart of the matter, with a judge set to rule, is the purported existence of the Priory of Sion. But of course, nonfiction ideas can't, by definition, be copyrighted, so the case was thrown out. But now, it makes sense that, having hacked through Brown's bullshit, we should take some time to respectfully review the research of these serious-minded authors, Michael Bajant, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln, and the output of their work, the imposing tome, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. But? But what? But you're about to tell us they're full of shit too, right? Dana, you know me too well. Actually, I've got much more love in my heart for the hapless, credulous, true believer authors of Holy Blood, a book that first appeared in the 80s and whose, again, purportedly non-fictional conclusions launched a furor that played out as a sort of miniature version of the Da Vinci Code madness of the 2000s. In fact, the story of how Holy Blood, Holy Grail came into existence in the first place is incredibly interesting in and of itself, especially as it touches upon the existence of a real-life secret society, the aforementioned Priory of Sion. JT, a lifelong student of the paranormal and the unexplained. I've spent over 35 years researching and learning about a wide range of subjects, from UFOs and cryptids to ghosts and the supernatural, from hidden and lost treasures to mankind's mysterious past, and all other things mysterious and Fortean. Each week I'll bring you some relevant and interesting articles in this genre, as well as a different topic, some you may be familiar with, but many you most likely will never have known existed. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride, and let me be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained on the Paranormal Sun. <laughs> 